Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everyone. This is Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation. We sat down with four freshman Congress members, two Democrats and two Republicans, to talk about compromise and bipartisanship in a divided Washington, D.C., we asked them about what has surprised them the most in their first month in Washington, how to legislate on crime and immigration, and what to do about the looming debt ceiling deadline. Here's the full conversation. Joining us now for a look at the new Congress, a group of freshman House members. Congressman Robert Garcia is the president of the Democratic freshman class. He's from the state of California. Gentleman next to him is New York Republican Congressman Mike Lawler. Congresswoman Summer Lee is a Democrat, and she is from the state of Pennsylvania. And Congressman Zach Nunn is a Republican from Iowa. And it's good to have you all at the same table. Thank you. And I wonder, is this the first time that you've had a bipartisan conversation since you came to Washington? (laughs) We had orientation, which was bipartisan. (laughs) We talked a little bit at some of the events. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I want to jump into a number of the big questions, but I wonder just if we could go around the table, what has surprised you in this first month on the job? I mean, first, I think what's been a, a great surprise is how united Democrats are. I think we're united to win back the majority in two years. We've been pushing back on what we view as Republican extremism. We've seen it on the floor time and time again. Um, And I've also been really, really impressed with just how Democrats really represent what America is all about today, standing up for working people uh, and really trying to uplift the middle class. And so that's something that I'm really proud of. And I think that freshman Democrats are united, first and foremost, to win back the majority. Is being in the majority 
everything you hoped for. Well, coming from the permanent minority of the state legislature in New York, uh, it's great. Um, you know, obviously we had uh, an interesting first uh, few days with the speaker vote, but the reality is we have uh, gotten unified and we are advancing forward uh, with our Republican agenda. And the bottom line here is this, the American people wanted a check and balance on the Biden administration. They did not want one party rule. And coming from a state like New York, where I represent a district that Joe Biden won by 10 points and there's 70,000 more Democrats than Republicans, uh, my objective is to find solutions. And uh, I had among the most bipartisan voting records in Albany. Uh, and I will have the same down here because uh, regardless of party, w we have to do the work of the American people. And, and that's what I've been focused on since coming here over the last month. Congresswoman, what surprised you? I, you know, I find little surprising with government. You know, I also came from what we thought was going to be a permanent minority in, in Pennsylvania. So I've, I've dealt with um, having limited say. I've dealt with kind of the chaos that we have when you're not in control. So mm -hmm. dealing with that and going through that, right, I've had experience doing that. So what we kind of recognize is that our goal here is, is to continue to put forth an agenda for working people, an agenda for working families, making sure that we're pushing that. Um, there are going to be opportunities to do that. But also there are going to be many barriers. So I don't find the barrier surprising, but I think that like many others, you know, the first week of, of Congress was, was pretty surprising. And, you know, just taking that long to get sworn in, right, right, was not something that I don't think any any American, you know, thought was on the was in the cards for us. You didn't think you'd be sworn in in the middle of the night. No, on Saturday. Uh, no, that was not that was not what we expected. It was, and it, it was historic. Yeah. <laughs> many ways. That's right. Yeah. Not in a good way, though. <laughs> Congressman Dunn. Yeah. So, you know, I'm coming from a military background. I'm thrilled with the freshman class, both Republicans and Democrats. And what a number of us did is we took time to really sit down over coffee with each other. I've been working with my Democratic colleagues. I'm from a Midwestern state. We're not going to get things through unless we sit down and work with other folks who are geographically aligned with us. I'm not as interested in the R or the D after the name, so long as we're finding pragmatic solutions. You know, as a you know, military officer, one of the things that we worked on very clearly was we had one common goal with a very diverse team. Mm -hmm. And you can achieve objectives by setting out clear standards. I think, you know, around this table even, we'll probably agree on the majority of things. Maybe how we get there is different, but we all have an intent that we came here to serve. We didn't spend 18 plus months on a campaign trail to come here and not get things accomplished. Republicans, Democrats have the opportunity to really move forward on things that are important for communities like mine in rural Iowa, as well as places as diverse as New York, California, and Pennsylvania, so long as we are focused on having an open dialogue. We saw that this week with the president and the Speaker of the House. I hope that continues in our freshman class. What concerns you most about the state of our politics in our country? Yeah, so I'm privileged to get to sit on financial services and ag. And across the board, I think we have a common threat. Uh, first amongst those is one of our near-peer states. That's the state of China. The role here is that this becomes a direct threat not only to our national security, mm -hmm. but it's what's happening to folks and farms in my own district, yours as well. We have an opportunity here to really stand up with a clear policy measure that China can be an ally to the United States and offer them an on-ramp to be successful, or we can start finding ways to make sure that we hold them accountable now so we're not playing catch-up like Ukraine a year later. Are you talking about ownership of farmland? Absolutely. Ownership of farmland, ownership of intellectual property, the theft of what's coming out of the United States, as well as what China is doing behind the scenes to really threaten even our local populations. The extreme spread of fentanyl, uh, it's pouring across our borders. It's a direct threat to my community and ours across the area. 
And then also a China that remains unchecked, one that is looking at investing on U.S. dollars that are taking money out of our economy and then putting it back into growing not only the People's Liberation Army, but really a counterweight to where the United States economy can be. Congressman, you talked about Republican extremism. Does that sound like extremism to you? Listen, I think that uh, there's going to be some things we all agree on. But at the end of the day, you've got to look at the agenda and what Republicans and Speaker McCarthy have put forward in justice for a couple of weeks of the Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, Congressman Lee and I both serve on the Oversight Committee. Uh, their very first hearing is about attacking, essentially, the pandemic response. I mean, we, we know that we had a pandemic that killed over a million Americans. In my town alone, when I was, where I was mayor, 1,300 people died, and they're attacking vaccines. They're attacking the pandemic response. Uh, they're attacking basic uh, tools like allowing uh, healthcare workers to be masked or be vaccinated. That is extreme. That is not coming together and supporting the country. And so when you, when you start attacking the pandemic, uh, when you start attacking uh, the w women's ability to make decisions about our own body as it relates to uh, abortion care and access, uh, when you're expanding uh, the opportunity for gas and drilling on, on federal lands, that's been the initial opening salvo of the Republican Party in the Congress. And so I think as freshmen, we're trying to push back on that. And so I, I appreciate the kind of spirit of working together. There's a lot other things that we should be working on, in my opinion, than attacking the country, attacking healthcare workers, and attacking women. Are the, so what is it that's the, the biggest issue in the country right now? What is it that has you most concerned? Well, I think, I mean, for me, there's a couple of things. I think, I think number one, obviously, we're all, we all want to make sure that the economy continues to improve. Uh, I think the president's done a great job of bringing us back out of a real difficult recovery period because of the pandemic. Um, we're all focused on that. But we also, we have, there's other big issues, issues like immigration. As an immigrant myself, um, there are 11 million people in this country that deserve a pathway to citizenship or, des or deserve some type of opportunity to gain citizenship. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an area where I would hope that Republicans can come to the table to work on. We have an ability to also work to uplift working people in this country, ensure that we're not just providing tax cuts to billionaires and millionaires, but actually providing tax relief to small working families. So I I'm hopeful that Republicans will get on board with some of those agenda items. Mm -hmm. You sound like you're on the campaign trail. <laughs> you were put on the oversight committee. You were as well by leader Jeffrey. Why do you think he selected the two of you for that particular committee, which seems like it is a place where we're going to see a lot of political fights rather than legislation? Well, I mean, it's a it's a committee that is you know, about oversight, right? It's, it's one of the least legislative committees, right? You're right. not off, you're not, it's not there for us to see bills advance. It's there for us to do accountability. It's right. there for us to oversee the government, to make sure that it's accountable to American people. So I think that uh, Leader Jeffries put uh, folks like uh, me and uh, Robert Garcia on this committee because we need people who are going to continue to, to redirect the conversation mm -hmm. back to what American people actually sent us here to accomplish, making sure that we are redirecting us and making sure that we are being very careful with taxpayer dollars with the investigations that we do, right? Are we going to spend time investigating uh, a Biden's laptop or are we going to spend time making sure that we're holding corporations mm -hmm. accountable in the middle of a pandemic, right, where we see unprecedented price gouging and we're seeing folks who are hit at every level uh, from every angle, right, who are, who are trying to, to make way and trying to make buy. So I think that we're there because we need fighters. We need people who are going to speak truth to power, and we need people who are going to not just go with the flow, right, just not going to let our country be led down a, a pathway of ridiculousness, to be quite frank, mm -hmm. but instead redirecting to make sure that we are thinking about American people every single day in their, in their best interest. So you just had the very first hearing on that committee, and it was about covid but yep. pandemic, federal funding, and wasteful yep. spending. Do you think that was a waste of time? 
I think that it was a disingenuous attack. We're in the midst of a pandemic where in my state, in my home state, within months, we had a million folks, almost a million folks who found themselves unemployed, right? Who were desperate. They were not, uh, they couldn't figure out where they were going to eat. And we knew that we needed to respond immediately, right? And this is a distraction from the people who were suffering, the people who had very real needs that we met that we were able to meet because of federal funding, because of federal programs, and to attack them when I think about the ways in which the pandemic disproportionately impacted communities like mine, yeah. black and brown communities, disabled communities. These, this is an ongoing pandemic, and it seems like we're we're more willing to, to look backwards at how we could have uh, slowed down aid instead of figuring out how we're going to actually get everybody through the pandemic and not just able-bodied folks. Can, can I just highlight on this? You know, I appreciate what my colleagues are saying. And, and Mike, I'm going to turn over to you here. Look, I was a National Guardsman on the front line providing COVID response to folks. And our state, Iowa, was one of the first states to open back up. It was to flatten the curve, not to have a three-year-plus lockdown on what was happening here. Mm-hmm. The president's admitted himself. He's ending it, but he's still rolling it till May. We have the opportunity to open up states, businesses, families, communities, so people didn't have to be put out of work for a year. We didn't have kids who are now years and years behind where they should be in their learning process when schools, again, like the Midwest, opened back up and got children back to the in-person learning that was so important Mm -hmm. for them. But the the focus of the committee on paper is supposed to be looking at waste and federal spending, not relitigating the pandemic. I mean, it just sounds Mm -hmm. like, I think, for a lot of people at home, that this is all going to be a big political brawl for the next two years. Is well, that I, what that listen, looks like? I, I'm serving on financial services and foreign affairs, and those are two substantive committees that are going to deal with a lot of uh, important issues over the next two years. But just on the issue of the pandemic, coming from New York, you know, former Governor Cuomo made a policy directive that really put seniors in harm's way. And that is something that should be investigated. The New York State Comptroller has acknowledged that there was billions of dollars of waste in unemployment insurance fraud as part of the COVID pandemic. So to just dismiss this and say, oh, there should be no investigation, I think is really disingenuous. When you look at the amount of money that has been spent over the last two years uh, in response to COVID, uh, yes, there was legitimate things that we needed to help the American people through, but there's also serious concerns about how that money was spent. For me, this is, at the end of the day, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, all of us want a few basic things in life, right? We want a good-paying job to provide for our families. We want a quality education for our children. We want access to housing and health care. And we want to live in safe neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. For me, that's why I ran for office. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm down here. And I think there's a lot of work that we can do together to address these challenges. Like yes, what? there's going to there's be fights. There's going to be disagreement on issues. Um, Frankly, over the last two years, the Democratic Congress provided very little to no oversight over the Biden administration. So this is about ensuring accountability. The American people wanted to have a check and balance. And that is what the House Republican majority will be. Okay, Uh, let me ask you, Monday is going to be the second anniversary of the attack on the United States Capitol. Um, In the time since then, there have been at least 7000 potential threats against lawmakers. I wonder, as you all made the decision to run for office and to come here, how do you think about your own safety and that of your family? Congresswoman? I'm a progressive black woman 
who, when we see who, the trends of who are typically uh, most at risk, the people who get the most threats, the most vitriol, the most hatred. I think about uh, Congresswoman Omar. I think about uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. I think about uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I, I know And it's unfortunate. But we know when we take this on that we are putting ourselves at risk. We know that we're putting our families at risk. I know that people know where we live. I know that when we say things, when we talk about issues that make people uncomfortable for me, specifically when I talk about racial justice, when we talk about uh, poverty, when we talk about working uh, workers' rights, right? Every time we talk about that, we see an increase in hate speech. We see an increase of people who are targeting us. And we know that we have to work through that because um, it's necessary, because our voices are needed here, because we know that people are attempting to scare us out of these roles. But we have to take precautions. And that's why I'm happy um, that we have added security, right? That we're able to at least... uh, make our houses more secure, right? That's very, it's a very small thing to do, but even just having alarms and making sure that we're walking in crowds with people, um, we take we take every precaution, but. But the, you're concerned. The, Absolutely. When you, when you see the video uh, of the former speaker's husband being attacked, uh, it's horrifying. And when you think about uh, your own family yeah. uh, and the fact that they are subjected to this vitriol, to this hatred, Um, I I think it is deeply concerning. And so I think all of us uh, as elected officials uh, have an obligation when uh, debating these issues, when talking about them, to really do so in a civilized manner because it provokes people on all sides. Uh, You know, I could look at my Twitter feed today and it's just it's it's a lot of nonsense that you see. But um, Nobody should be subjected to violence, to hatred, to bigotry, to uh, uh, to racism of any kind. Uh, and the fact that the former speaker's husband, who you would have thought they would have had the most security out of anybody, uh, could be subjected to that type of attack, uh, it, it has no place in our country. But to get back to your question, I mean, you, 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 I think everyone here is right. And we all renounce hatred and we renounce violence. But we also have to go back to what you mentioned about the Capitol attack as well. And we have still in this Congress members, particularly on, on the other side, that are unwilling to renounce the insurrection, that are unwilling to renounce members within the Republican Party that are standing up and that are saying very violent things. Who are you and, thinking of? Well, I mean, I'll take someone like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example. I think the way that, in my opinion and many others, the way that she incited violence, the way that she continues to defend those that attacked our government, that attacked our capital, uh, the way that she has uh, continues to um, not support what the Capitol Police tried to do that day, um, and the way that she has treated other members of not just her caucus, but of course of the Democratic caucus, I think is unacceptable. I think it's shameful. I think that you, if you cannot stand up and say that what happened on January 6th uh, was treason and was a tyranny against her own government and her own people, I don't think you should be in Congress. And she shouldn't be in Congress. So, so, Margaret, fair enough. I think we all at this table can agree that what happened on January 6th is truly a tragic day in history. We are also, I would offer, looking at this very much in an insular D.C. bubble. Look, I put my hand on the Bible, and I've flown operations with Russians being firing missiles at us. We all put our name out there because we want to serve our country. The true challenge that I see is the violence that has spiked over the last two years across the country. And so in my home district, we had a shooting at a kid's school that killed two children. Mm-hmm. We had a teacher who tried to help rescue them. Look, these are situations we need to get to the root cause of yeah. with respect, not just talk about January 6th and how threatened we feel, but really how well, under siege our communities are. Well, I want to talk to you are. all about crime, actually, yeah. in a few minutes. But to answer the question, you as a lawmaker— 
right. putting yourself and your family at risk in this environment. How did you come to peace with that? I mean, it's kind of incredible that you have to have this conversation right now. More than 7,000 yeah. threats against lawmakers. That doesn't come from nowhere. Last year, we had the highest number of deaths of law enforcement. I think there are a lot of brave men and women across the country who constantly are putting themselves on the front line. So we are all recognize the challenge, but I think it pales in comparison to what some of the brave heroes do every day. But you, we will come to crime, but on that question of you yeah. and your family. So yeah, we've got four little kiddos. We've got two in foster that, kids. That the security measures to date, the funding that was mm -hmm. just, for example, um, appropriated in the last Congress to help secure your families and put in the alarm systems and do things like that. You had to weigh that when you ran for office. Why was that worth that? I think there are a lot of things that uh, anybody who's going to step into the public arena puts themselves out there. Um, both your public safety, your family's integrity, that of your community. And so we weigh all of those things going forward. It's not an easy choice. But at the end of the day, we do it because we are trying to help a better community. Whether you're serving on the front line in your community or in Congress, mm -hmm. you've taken the sacrifice because you truly hope you can make a difference. But to be clear, yeah. it's, un it's unacceptable. We shouldn't be here where we are now. We shouldn't be in this environment. We're seeing our country. We're seeing a widened chasm, right? A widened mm -hmm. chasm in this country. Uh, disconnect and division. And when we think about the disinformation campaigns, when we think about the vitriolic statements that we hear from leaders, leaders of this country, leaders of this world, and when we think about the ways in which people are targeted because of them, mm -hmm. we know that there, there is language that incites violence. And when we as members of Congress, when we as member uh, public servants can't denounce it every single time, we put another one of our colleagues at risk. Mm -hmm. So this isn't something that we should just accept. It's something that we should fix. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a quick break, but this is why I like having bipartisan conversations <laughs> because we're trying to have positive conversations that are productive. So we'll take a quick break um, and we'll have another conversation on the other side of it with these new members. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back now with our panel of new House members. So I want to talk about some of the things you all think you can get done here in Washington. Congressman Lawler, um, the former Speaker Nancy Pelosi recently told the New York Times that uh, Democrats could have held on to the House if uh, New York politicians had realized earlier on that crime was such a key motivating uh, issue. In the last Congress, they greenlit about $4 billion in grants for local law enforcement. Do you think that money now needs to be accompanied by some kind of reform, something more on crime? Well, I've said repeatedly in New York State specifically uh, that cashless bail was one of the most dangerous policies enacted because New York State is the only state in the country that does not have a dangerousness standard. So judges don't have discretion when it comes to holding somebody who may be a harm to society. 
And over 40% of those released on non-monetary bail for felony offenses have been rearrested since cashless bail took effect. So that law needs to be repealed. And much like New Jersey did, where they put cashless bail in effect, but they allowed judges to have discretion, that's what New York needs to do. But But here in Washington. Here in Washington, there's a lot of uh, bipartisan support, I think, for especially making sure that law enforcement has the resources they need uh, and the training that they need to do their jobs effectively. Um, I think, obviously, uh, the situation in Memphis with Tyree Nichols is a, a horrifying example um, when, uh, you know, an individual is murdered um, and never should have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those officers were rightly terminated and are being held accountable. They've been charged with his murder. Um, and uh, we will see, uh, hopefully, swift justice there. But I think there's a lot of area where we can work together to address the rise in crime and why we are seeing such a rise across the country. Like what? Um, How would you address that? Or, or what do you see the Republican platform on this issue being if it's not police reform? Well, listen, Tim Scott has put forth a bill that the Democrats rejected last Congress. So I think that's something that we should uh, certainly uh, reevaluate. But I think, again, you have to look at what are some of the root causes of why uh, you know, we're seeing such an increase in, in crime, gang activity. Uh, obviously, you see the scourge of fentanyl pouring into our communities, uh, drugs being dealt uh, that are having a devastating impact. So I think there is a lot of area where we can work together mm-hmm. uh, to address these challenges. We need to make sure uh, that people have housing, economic opportunity, education. Those all play into Uh, Obviously, when you see an increase in crime, uh, those are issues that impact that. And so I think we need to figure out ways to work together in a bipartisan way to address these challenges. What about you, Congressman? This is your party in the majority. Four billion in grants just went to local law enforcement. Does Congress need to do anything more to address crime? No, I think we have a long way to go here, right? Uh, When I was chair of judiciary at the state level, I will move very aggressively after the George Floyd homicide. We immediately said that we were going to allow our attorney general to investigate crimes directly so that we weren't waiting on county attorneys. We made sure that bad law enforcement officers couldn't be cycled through without some kind of a background check on them that were harming the good officers. We made sure that we made a direct investment in mental health across the state and made sure that our regional, both our urban, but also our rural communities had access to that. And ultimately, we also worked with our law enforcement to make sure that law enforcement had a better relationship with the community rather than one of conflict Mm -hmm. that exploded after the defund the police movement. I think that we've seen some really good success here. There's some tangible successes we've seen at state levels. Let's bring those up to the federal level and make sure they can work the same way. So you do want to see more legislation on? Yeah, I think there's absolutely more that needs to be done this. What doesn't need to be done are what I will call these fig leaf grants, the idea that we can just hire more minority officers in rural Iowa. That is a very challenging thing to do. We should be identifying, and we saw tragically, even in Memphis, that that alone is not a, a silver bullet solution. We've really got to get to the effort of you know, good policing, but also recognizing when there is good law enforcement, we hold that up as a partner in a community. That's where this money could be going, and it needs to be accountable. I think far too much of this has gone to you know, some major metropolitan areas, which have seen actually crime spike in those neighborhoods. Congresswoman, you said um, it would be good to revive the George Floyd Policing Act, but we're so far past that right now, we really need to kind of escalate the conversation faster. What do you mean? What are you calling for? So let me be really clear. There is a proliferation of disinformation and bias in conversations about crime and conversations about policing. And to be very clear, police violence is crime. 
We cannot say that we care about crime, but then do nothing, choose to do nothing over and over and over when the crime is committed by a police officer. There are statistics that show that less than 2% of police officers who are engaged in misconduct are ever indicted at all. And while we can all celebrate that five black police officers, right, and it let it not escape us that it was only when they were black that there was swift action and there was a sixth who was not black and there was not swift action, um, that we can say that Tyree should be alive. So should Tatiana Jefferson. So should Antoine Rose II from my district. So should Mike Brown. So should uh, Philando Castile. Mm -hmm. They should all be alive. So when we're talking about crime and we're talking about how we're going to solve it, when I say that we need to change the conversation, we need to acknowledge that Public safety does not begin with policing. Public safety begins with investments. It begins with addressing our own implicit and explicit biases in policymaking and education and appropriations. How are we ensuring that communities that are starved of resources are getting an equitable uh, share of resources that we are investing in schools, that we're investing in jobs that pay a living wage, that we're, adjust that we're uh, investing in wraparound services, mm -hmm. health care, environmental justice, after-school programs, Programs, violence interrupters, until we're willing to do all of those, then we're not having a serious conversation about crime. Instead, what we're doing is we're, we're whistling. It's the dog whistle. And I want us to move beyond the dog whistle because everybody says that we care about public safety. Mm -hmm. We have empirical data that tells us what we can do about public safety, mm -hmm. about crime. We know that there's a correlation between poverty and crime, not race, not geography, not a uh, type of community to live in. Poverty and crime, but we're not addressing poverty. So when the president talks about reviving George Floyd Policing Act, you're saying not as it's currently written. You want more measures. Absolutely. In. I want us to be intentional at every step about addressing uh racial bias, about addressing poverty, about addressing crime, and about addressing police violence. But you would vote for it potentially. Potentially. Were, but although but I want to make sure that what we're voting for is actually going to take intentional steps to move yeah. us forward, not just uh, performative steps uh, to say that we've done reform. So you hear all this. Does police reform is dead on arrival in Congress? Well, it shouldn't be. I mean, I mean, I mean think, for, I, I take myself, uh, I was mayor of a city of half a million people before I got to Congress. At 800 members of our police department, um, and one thing you know, and it's true, I hope that we can all agree on, is that police reform, criminal justice reform is still necessary in this country. And we see over and over again that we have an issue with police, with systemic racism that still exists in institutions. And that includes our policing system, that includes our educational system, that includes health care. And so I think Representative Lee is absolutely right. And so I would vote for the George Floyd Policing Act if it was on the floor tomorrow, but more needs to be done. Additional it steps won't be to put be on taken. the floor tomorrow under Republican <laughs> leadership, absolutely. to be clear. And that's why I want to be but. clear also with our, when our colleagues bring up that more should be done uh, around this issue. Well, there is a bill there was, and that could be reintroduced and they could vote for. In addition to that, I think it's important that we focus on facts. Mm -hmm. The truth is that you look at a place like California or most of the country, we are actually safer today than we were 15, 20, or 30 years ago statistically. And so there's a lot of um, concerns around crime, and there should be. We all want to be safe. But I also think we also got to look at the data and actually look at the facts. The truth is that every single election cycle, it just seems that there's a lot of focus on crime and inner cities. And, and, and the truth is that we are safer than we were 20 or 30 years ago. But there ago was in a spike in violent crime. In, in, New York State, in New York State in particular, the reason there was a focus on crime by voters is because they didn't feel safe. You had people being pushed in front of oncoming subway cars. You had be people being mm -hmm. stabbed in the street. By the way, the vast majority of victims of crime are black and brown people. So to act as though it, there, there's not a crime issue, uh, I think is, is dismissing the fact that 
it is serious and people do not feel safe. And so, yes, we need to address the root causes of why someone may turn towards crime or why they may find themselves as part of a gang. Uh, but we also need to hold people accountable with the decisions that they make. And I think part of the problem here is that oftentimes it is very uh, easy to go say law enforcement bad. But the vast majority of people who are in law enforcement are good people. They want to come home to their families safely. They don't want to use their guns. They don't want to kill people. They're not looking to bring harm to anybody in the community. I come from a, a community that has strong law enforcement presence. Fifty percent of of Households in my district have a cop, a firefighter, a first responder, or a veteran in them. They're good people, and they want to do right by our communities. The vast majority of people in poor and working-class neighborhoods are good people. They are. And they are they victims are. of crime that we don't say anything about. Presence. For instance, exactly. they want like to be for, for instance, there is no police presence when they're, when they're a victim of wage theft. They, we, we, we're not seeing anybody you know fair mongering. I passed legislation. Uh, well, I passed legislation that's awesome. And I would to like to see it happening here. Because what be we prosecuted. don't see when we're talking about crime, we're really talking about white collar crime. We're really talking about ways in which we're going to hold corporate criminals accountable. We're really make, taking any strides mm -hmm. in any level of government to do anything about that. But we continue to talk about the crimes of desperation and particularly the crimes in marginalized communities. So I don't hear any agreement here. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you uh, about some other issues. You raised, uh, for example, uh, immigration and border security earlier in the mm -hmm. conversation. Um, obviously, there's so many different pieces to this puzzle. It has been years, and there has been a failure to legislate on this. What's going to be different in a split Congress now? Do you see hope for this? I do. I, I really do. And I think I've been down to the border. I've seen firsthand people come across looking for a better opportunity. I met with an individual who had the opportunity to come here. He'd been waiting for six years and finally decided, well, I'm going to try this. And now he's free somewhere in America. Um, the challenge right now is until we secure the border, we have a really porous situation where the folks who are coming here illegally are jumping ahead of the folks who are coming here legally. The folks who have set up shop in America and want to be good citizens are finding themselves outfoxed by people who are being encouraged to come here illegally. And it's not like everybody has the chance. It's those who can get here. Look, I served multiple tours in Afghanistan. We brought my Afghan interpreter to the United States after nine combat tours. He became a U.S. citizen. I flew out the largest group of, you know, uh, all volunteer folks with Task Force Argo to come to the United States, 3,000 of them, Americans and our allies. We still have folks who are legally allowed to come to the United States that can't leave the country under this administration who've been forgotten about and they served 20 years, and we paid to help their education and their families. But instead, we're allowing a situation where we are allowing some of the largest amount of illegal immigrants to come into this country and not supporting them. We're get, doing them a disservice when they come here by turning them loose with no ability to be able to support them or I their families. I also don't hear any proposal that either of you will ever agree on, the well, two of you. Let's secure the border, and let's have a legal pathway. I think, I think, I think we would all that, hopefully agree I, on I, that. I think most Republicans in this Congress have been disingenuous on immigration. I'm an immigrant. I came yep. to the U.S. when I was a young kid. I had the privilege and honor of becoming an American in my early 20s. I am grateful to this country. I love this country. Immigrants love this country. They just want an opportunity to be here, a pathway to citizenship. But you're talking about dreamers. Program. You're talking yeah. about border security. Right. You, I mean, there are different you can do aspects both. of this. You can, you what can do part both. of this can get through in this Congress? Which piece? So I, I, well, I, I would like I would all of you both. Could be yeah, I, this Congress. Yeah, done. Here, I agree here, with you on the that. Thing. The thing is, is that un unfortunately, we, there's this myth that Democrats somehow aren't concerned about a secure border or that we don't want an orderly process. But we also want to ensure that we want secure, everybody wants a secure border, all of our borders, by the way, not just the southern border. We want to have a secure mm -hmm. country. But we also want to ensure that we're talking about the humanity of people. 
These are people that are coming to this country that are desperate, that are suffering. We were a country, we are a country of immigrants, of people that, that came here for a better life, like myself, like my family, like my mom. And so this idea that we can't give these people justice, we can't support and help them, I think is anti-American. And so I hope that in this Congress, Speaker mm -hmm. McCarthy and our, and our Republican uh, uh, friends will actually come to the table with an immigration package that we can all get behind. And I am hopeful, like some of you, I have talked to some Republicans on the other side that have an interest in a broader immigration reform package. And that, that's something that I hope that we can all work on. My, my wife is an immigrant as well. And she came to this country about a decade ago in search of economic opportunity. She comes from Eastern Europe, a former Soviet satellite state. The bottom line here is this. We embrace immigration. All right. All of us at some point, somehow, our families came here. And if you look at it, um, we need immigration. Immigrants enrich our communities, our culture and our economy. But we have to have a legal process. And you can't continue to have tens of thousands of migrants pouring across the border every day and then being left to fend for themselves in communities all across our country. So you need to secure the border. We need to increase border patrol. We need to increase the number of judges and court personnel to hear asylum cases. Nobody should be waiting two to three years to hear an asylum case with the hope that they may come back for the court hearing. That's insane. So we absolutely have to secure the border. We need to deal with the fact that you have 25 million plus folks who are here undocumented. Right. And not everybody is going to be able to get a pathway to citizenship, but we're certainly not rounding up and kicking out 25 million people. Right. And so there needs to be a, a process to deal with that. And then we need to fix the legal immigration process so that people who want to come here mm -hmm. can do so legally and contribute to our communities, to our culture, to our economy. And I think there can be broad bipartisan uh, agreement on this if everybody is willing to kind of give a little. Both sides have failed on immigration mm -hmm. for years, for years. This is not one party or the other. Both sides have failed miserably here. And we have a situation that is unsustainable. And on top of it all, you have fentanyl pouring across the mm -hmm. southern border, killing hundreds of thousands of our citizens year after year after year. Yeah. That is a crisis that needs to be dealt with. I want to move on to, to governance and debt. But did you have something? Because I didn't. OK. On um, basic governance, can I see a show of hands? Are you all confident that America will avoid defaulting on its debt? Yes. Yes. Show of hands. I'd like to think so. I hope so. You are, <laughs> you're confident we will avoid the okay. cliff. We, we absolutely will. The bottom line is this. We have incurred debt previously. We have an obligation to pay that. We will lift the debt ceiling. Do you but, believe that some of your Republican colleagues who have been very in a very different place on this um, will come along and that the party? Not, absolutely. But, but here's the point I would make. Over, over the past many decades, major spending reform has been tied to the debt ceiling. OK, so the White House needs to recognize one thing. One party rule in Washington is over. They need to negotiate with the speaker in good faith to come to a long term agreement that puts us on the path to fiscal solvency. We cannot continue to spend at the levels that we right. have and incur more debt at the levels that this administration and previous administrations before it have. Mm -hmm. It's unsustainable. That's so there the needs fiscal, to be there the, needs to be a longer term agreement and it requires a good faith negotiation. Right. I think a lot of people would agree with you on the broader premise, but on the specifics of the debt ceiling. Um, Speaker McCarthy was just here 
um, and was saying that uh, at this moment in time for him, those two issues are going to be linked. In the event that we are at that brink, if he is convinced to put a clean bill on the floor, in other words, you might be asked to vote with Democrats to lift it. Would you do so? 15 Republicans along with the rest of the Democrats. Look, I'm not going to get into the hypothetical. What I will say is this. The debt ceiling will be lifted. Mm -hmm. We will pay our debts that have been incurred, but we also have to get our fiscal house in order. And you so the White House, financial services, the White House correct. and the speaker need to work together on this. But you, I mean, yeah. given the state you are from, you know, yep. I am sure that is a question that has been put to you. It has by CEOs on down. Yeah, exactly. And, so and it's not I a hypothetical no, in a no, far off at all. Hypothetical in, in the situation that you're you're presenting. But my point is, if everybody's working in good faith, mm-hmm. both the president and the speaker, and everybody's being responsible and recognizing that going forward, we cannot continue to incur this level of debt, mm-hmm. then we should be able to reach an agreement on this, no problem. And I think if people are being sincere about that, we will. That's the question. Why are you confident? Well, Margaret, I would be more confident if when the Democrats respectfully controlled all powers of government, they had the opportunity before passing a trillion dollar budget and bouncing. You they know, Mitch McConnell said in the Senate, but it was absolutely capable. This wasn't a unified Republican position. We, we've had three weeks on, on the calendar and this is already your first question, our first month in office. So clearly everyone was thinking about this prior to June. The other aspect of this the, is this is a key issue that is also being raised. A hundred percent. Right. And it's but this is no surprise to us. We've done this twice in the last two years. We've done it repeatedly throughout history without Republicans. But I just want to understand, so, Margaret, you think that you're being set up with the debt ceiling? No, I'm saying this could have been solved just a month ago if, they wa- if truly the Democrats wanted to do this. This is now a two-party conversation. It means the Senate's involved. Mm-hmm. It means the House is involved. And it means the president should not say— The Senate say, has made clear this is a House issue. But it's not, right? It's an American issue. It will be, And they eventually. need to be part of this conversation but that, as well. But I guess that's the question, is in this environment where it is so divided, right. including within your party, this is why we are talking about the potential— yeah. Of Republican the reason to be first proactive. Leadership there's there's, not broad, being able to there's get broad agreement more within members. our party that Please. we need to get spending right. under control. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us ran on right. reining in government spending. The, the Biden administration increased spending by over $5 trillion in two years. Yeah. So to, to say that there's disagreement within the party, frankly, there's not. The issue ultimately will be for the White House and, and frankly, for Senator Schumer, mm-hmm. who is from New York, to shirk his responsibility and say, Eh, well, let let the House deal with this. No, come to the table, negotiate, mm-hmm. work together, and let's come up with a bipartisan solution to address this so in the way it's me, always been done in the past. So um, Social Security, health care, including Medicare, Medicaid, and then defense are the three biggest line items. Where do you cut? If you have to have this conversation, where do you cut? Defense. The reality is is that we can't keep asking the same people to compromise over and over and over. And not to say that we don't need a secure country, not to say that we are are, are just going to say, well, we should not have a budget for it. But we are to acknowledge that that budget has increased every year. It is the highest in history every time. But every year we're asking uh, American people to decide between Medicare, uh, Social Security, Pell Grant recipients. Are we going to tell first generation college students who are attempting to to break into a better life for themselves that there are no opportunities for them because we cannot fund a Pell Grant? Are we going to go to people who are in the midst of a housing crisis and say that we can no longer fund housing grants for you for, from the federal government at your time of need, right? It's 
when we talk about these conversations, we have to humanize them. We have to be very clear what we are proposing to cut, who are going to be impacted by it, and then think through better ways than to just continue to hold American people hostage, to hold our budget hostage, and quite frankly, right, to continue to go back to the same people, particularly the most vulnerable and marginalized. And say way, let me say on this. Sorry, this is the hot, hot <laughs> issue. I, 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 and there's a lot of discussion yeah. about uh, spending and what we're spending money on. But let's also be very, very clear what happened. Well, I want you to answer years. the same question here. I'm though. happy to. I'm happy to. But let's also talk about what, 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 what my colleague just said. Uh, what we've actually been spending all this money on is actually getting our country back on track. We just went through the single largest loss of life event. In, in the modern era of our country, we lost over a million Americans. We spent money trying to keep people alive. We spent money trying to keep businesses afloat. We spent money to ensure that people were housed, people that were, needed support. And so, yes, we spent, there was significant spending, but it was spending to respond to this incredible pandemic. And so this You're saying government's the solution for this. I'm saying states like Iowa that opened uh, back uh, up, people we're, were the solution. We're, we're, we're in the business of government. Well, so of course help. government is Absolutely. So, so let's... And, With and respect, as far, and as, right, far as, as far as the this, this unity amongst Republicans around the debt ceiling, the truth is there is no unity. Uh, we're not the Democrats are united. Not we're not going to cut Social Security. <laughs> we're not going to cut Medicare. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm interested to know how we're going to get to this resolution, so that because we know that this this issue at the end of the day impacts working people the most. So the discretionary spending you would cut is also in defense. Uh, listen, I, I think first of all, I, if it was up to here. me, we'd be raising taxes on, billi on, on billionaires and corporations. That's how we'd be getting more, more, more support. But I think uh, Representative Lee is right. I think we have to be able to look at an institution uh, like the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. I, I manage the police department. and It, it is okay to look at, at areas uh, and make cuts. And we know how large it was beyond the, the, the Pentagon budget, the budget for defense, by the way, was larger than the president even asked for. In, in, in this, uh, uh, in this, um, and in Republicans this and Democrats year. both voted for that. Mm -hmm. right. So let's be very clear here. If somebody Not is looking for an opportunity <laughs> to go to college, they have the opportunity to serve in the military, and it will help pay for them to have the privilege of going to college. What I will not do is see members of the military who are on the front line defending our very opportunity to even mm -hmm. go to college have their paychecks cut or their opportunity to defend themselves cut because of lackluster equipment. Well, well, because because the military, I think that there is the a military bad difference between— very, No, no, no. You just said grants no, versus a, military. No, 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 no. Let's humanize this. Let's humanize. There's a difference between sending our, our troops uh, somewhere defenseless and then looking at our defense budget. Right. Which is so the highest of the next what, 20 countries combined. Right. We're not and, saying and that we we're sending. And we are continually forced so, to defend the world. With right. endless, and that's right. endless wars. With exactly. endless wars. But you not, know, Speaker McCarthy, on this maker. program last week yeah. said when it came to cutting discretionary spending, actually one of the places he would look to trim fat was the Defense Department. You Margaret, I don't think, sound like you're okay with no, that. So let's let's take, first of all, what he did say is take things off the table. We're going to protect Social Security. People yep, have paid correct. into that. They deserve to have that back. Republicans are committed to that. Let's take the Medicare that has gone out there to make sure that people have access to the health care they need to be successful off the table. When it comes to defense spending, what I just heard was cutting things across the board. If there's an, a review, everything should have the opportunity to be assessed. So you're on board. But overall, I'm doing it. Yeah, I think what? we should be looking across the board. And I would also say, yeah. here's where we have been successful in a state like Iowa that has the number okay. one growth rate, is that we don't spend more than we take in. But and every year we have spent... No, no, way, it's not a big Because she asked me, who are we cutting? Here's, yeah. here's How about we grow the economy the to begin with? By taxing we have not had a real budget that doesn't grow the economy yes. in a very long time. And you have to go line by <laughs> line, and yeah. you need these departments and agencies to justify their spending. Right. They have right. not had to do that right. in a very long time. We need a real budget process sure. as part of this negotiation. Sure, which takes time. We won't see the White House 
passes till March, and we got the debt ceiling uh, date on well, the calendar we'll in June, July, which is why we're summer. talking about it right. on Face the Nation. So <laughs> we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you all for coming in. And I want to thank each and every one of you for joining our panel. Thanks for listening to this Face the Nation podcast bonus episode. As a reminder, you can watch Face the Nation every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern, 9.30 Central, or on Paramount+. Plus. If you want to listen, follow, and listen to the Face the Nation showcast every Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.